making a movie physically and mentally destroys you. You know, it just, it just does. It becomes such a labor of love that sometimes we neglect to look at it as a business. People lock into this idea that there is a correct way to do things. There's not. There's a million ways to do it. Video has become the most effective way to get people to do something that it is you want them to do. It's time for filmmakers to get real with Jeffrey Michael Bays and Forrest Day Jr. Welcome back to the podcast, Get Real Indie Filmmakers. You can tweet us at Borgus Film if if you don't like what we're doing. Just go ahead and complain. Uh, we have we have every avenue for you to do that. Email us privately at info at borgus.com. By the way, Forrest is back. Da, 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 da. <laughs> you you have returned after a brief hiatus. Yeah, it wasn't that I ever left anywhere. It's just that I, my ability to communicate was gone because my computer crashed. Yeah, yeah we were talking to William Dickerson, and uh, all of a sudden you lost your computer. Uh, and the audio. Yeah. So William but you're, was great. You're using a Mac, so yeah, probably not a surprise. <laughs> it was an old Mac. I mean... Uh, I, you know, the average person would have went through three Windows computers in the time that that other MacBook lasted. So, well, our guest today is William Dickerson. He is back. We we have finished the interview with him, and it's it's a good one. Uh, mm-hmm. We are going to be talking about directing today, and uh, we're going to ask him about the process of casting Catherine Irby. Now, you may not know who Catherine Irby is just by her name, but you probably would recognize her from Law and Order. Criminal Intent, I think, is the one she was on. And also uh, a classic, What About Bob? She was uh, the daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, she, she's in his film, No Alternative, which is a great film, by the way. I don't know if you've seen it for us. I've, I've seen part of it. But it is available now on streaming, and it will be uh, available on Amazon Prime in a couple of weeks, I think. Mm-hmm. But it's a great film, and it's a surprising film, because what happens is you're expecting something to happen. And then it something else completely different happens. <laughs> I know I'm I'm being vague intentionally yeah. because I don't want to spoil it, but uh, it's definitely a nice, great indie film that captures the feel of the '90s. And uh, if you like '90s music, this is definitely the film to take a look at. Yeah, it looks well done from what I've seen. Another thing that uh, you are working on. And I think we're getting closer to this happening. We've been talking about this probably since the first episode. Is that you are uh, you're doing a special interview about gaffer tape? Yeah, and and we've I've been working on this for like a year. We've talked about it, you and I, for about a year. I finally got Marty from Gaffer Power. It's a it's a company that sells all kinds of tape, but we're going to talk about how valuable gaff tape or gaffer tape is on a film set and in all the other uses you can uh, use it for. I, it's an amazing and this tape. is the kind of thing that nobody else talks about. You, you're not going to hear this anywhere else but on you know, any other podcast. If there's a filmmaker out there who has never used gaffer tape, they're going to be amazed. Uh, and and <laughs> okay. any professional filmmaker has used it, but uh, it's yeah. the, the new guys. I mean, they're going to be like, well, I use duct tape for that. No! So we're going to learn about that. That interview is going to happen. By the time this one's released, it will have happened. And it will be interesting. I hope so. And hey, maybe we'll <laughs> come up with like a way to uh, give away some rolls of gaffer tape, too. Ah, We'll see what we can do. Marty's already agreed to uh, hook us up 
with some prizes. Speaking of our listeners, uh, since we have switched our uh, platform of our streaming uh, hosting service, we actually have data about our listeners. Wow. So where do you think our listeners, most of them, which countries do you think our listeners are from? Oh, this is a trick question because you want me to say United <laughs> States and uh, or Canada. And you'd be right. Oh, okay. There's nothing surprising there. Oh, okay. But what do you think? What do you think the second most uh, populous country of our listener base is? I'll say the UK. Um, well, it's on there. England. But Australia Australia and Spain are tied for number two. Oh, that's interesting. So we have we have listeners in Spain. That's a little bit of a surprise. Shout out to Spain. Yeah. Shout out Canada. to Australia. Shout out to Canada. Hi, guys. And United Kingdom. Uh, a few listeners in Denmark. So that's... Uh, that's interesting. We did have one listener in Bahrain, which I think is that's cool. Is the uh, interesting one? Yeah, that, and I had to actually look to see where that was. It's actually in the Persian Gulf. So that's kind of cool to know that. You know, hopefully we're helping people all over the world, or yeah, at least angering them. Angering them, yes. <laughs> and uh, we also do have a heat map where it shows clusters of where the people are in the United States mm-hmm. that are listening. Oh, that's cool. Um, and no surprise that we we do hit all the major filmmaking areas like Los Angeles, New York, Houston, a little bit in Atlanta, yep. some in Chicago, New Mexico. Um, but we are, yeah, we are hitting the uh, the kind of the smaller communities as well, like Colorado, Ohio, Indiana, Minnesota. So there's a midwestern uh, uh, representation here. So yeah, I think we're reaching a pretty broad swath. Anybody listening, if you're uh, put in the comments where you live, just put where you live. Say, hi, I'm from Atlanta or I'm from or wherever you're from. That would be cool. I want to I want to hear from where people live. Yeah. So uh, thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and uh, leave us a star rating there and tweet us at Borges Film with all of your ideas for show topics and email us at info at well, Forrest, uh, good to have you back. Uh, we're going to take a little break here, and uh, we're going to talk with William Dickerson, and we want to ask him about the casting process of Catherine Irby and also what it's like to direct a period piece. His, his film goes back 20 years, uh, which presents some complications with you know, set design and costumes on a low budget. So we'll talk with William Dickerson of the New York Film Academy right after this. That's one thing Alfred Hitchcock was really good at, creating suspense with a camera. For the last couple of years, I've been teaching Hitchcock suspense techniques at festivals like Buffalo, St. Louis, Palm Springs, Los Angeles. Filmmakers are learning easy tricks for building suspense that are so easy to implement. Now there's a way for you to get access in my new book, Suspense with a Camera. It's available in bookstores now. And don't miss our free docuseries on YouTube called Hitch 20.
We're joined by William Dickerson of the New York Film Academy in Los Angeles. He wrote and directed two feature films, Detour, which was out a couple of years ago, maybe a little bit longer, and the new film that he just released, No Alternative. Will, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. So first of all, I want to get into some directing questions, you know, about casting and working with Catherine Irby and all of that. But uh, first of all, tell us how to get copies of these films. Well, you know, they're available on a variety of different platforms. Uh, your best bet, I think, is to go to, to Amazon, where they have um, both Movies Detour and, and No Alternative. Uh, you can rent or buy them. Uh, the DVD and Blu-ray are also available. And uh, as well uh, are my book and uh, soundtrack to the film. So there's kind of a multimedia assault of an alternative happening right now, which I've never done before with, with any of my films, but uh, it's, it's really quite exciting. Uh, by the way, before we go any further, that song we just heard was called Chummin from Latter-day Saints. Now, that's an original song, right? Yes, it is. It was uh, written over 20 years ago oh, by wow. my my band, my grunge band back in the day. <laughs> and so that's actually in the film. Yeah, yeah. You know, we just kind of did it and we, we said said to each other, we're going to use this in a movie 20 years from now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, you know, great job on uh, mimicking the 90s style. <laughs> <laughs> but apparently Wasn't all the music difficult. actually is from the 90s in the movie. Yeah, exactly. I, I would say there are some tracks here and there that are technically not, but it's very difficult to tell. I mean, we're talking about within like a uh, – well, actually, no, I'm sorry. They are, are all from the 90s. Um, mm -hmm. They're just not all from 1994 where the movie the movie takes uh, place. Yeah. There's like one or two. They're maybe 95, but no one will ever know. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're still very much within the, within the same uh, style, but – I I am in love with, with the 90s. I mean, I always have been. I mean, I know every generation kind of feels the same way about the, the, the moment. Um, but that time of that time in their lives when they grew up and, and came of age. Uh, but I, I truly believe that there really hasn't been a more important pop cultural moment than, than the 90s. Uh, and to go back there in this movie has been uh, a pretty wild ride. Now, why do you say important? Because of the uh, the suicide thing? Is that what you're getting at? Or, well, I mean, I think just the the changes in music and movies, oh, specifically yeah. at the time, where it was just like the indie, you know, indie revolution of of films, um, and music really, it took such a turn from the '80s. It kind of wiped away all the you know, pop pablum that the 80s delivered and uh, gave us something totally, totally new and, and refreshing um, that spoke to the alienation of the youth at the time. And this was a time period where everybody was supposed to be great. The kids of the baby boomers were, you know, going to do better than, than uh, the previous generation. And they didn't have to worry behind their white picket fences. But, you know, guess what? Uh, teenagers have problems, but they felt like they couldn't talk about their problems. Um, and felt alone, but they were through the music. They were able to to come together because really the music of the time. You you go back there and listen to the mood, the tone, uh, uh, listen to the lyrics, and really, it's so much of it is about depression, about suicide, about subjects that that teenagers were afraid to to talk about. So they really found a place in this music. So I think that was 
uh, extremely um, important and certainly for in, in my life, very, uh, uh, very relevant. I find that interesting because I, uh, I, I feel the same way about the eighties that you feel about the nineties. <laughs> and when you're saying this, I'm like, wait a minute, oh, no. the problem, like, uh, uh, you know, I love the 80s and, you know, I graduated early uh, in, in 1982. So you're right, though, that the time you grow up in is is amazing. Uh, the music is amazing. And it, and the 80s music is so different than the 70s. And, the and you know, oh, yeah. you talk to I talked to my parents. My mom loved the 50s. So every decade is special to each person. And uh, I find that Agreed. interesting that you said that, Will. Yeah, well, there are some there are there are some good bands that came out of the eighties. There's uh, yeah, there the was police, like two, <laughs> you two, the, the police, the Cure, the police. Smiths. You know, I mean, new new wave was, you know, I think that the the better movement of the eighties. I mean, uh, I'm really talking about the kind of Def Leppards and yeah, yeah. White Snakes and Motley Crues and those types of where while in, so while some songs are enjoyable, there really isn't much depth to to that that music yeah. in my opinion uh, and i think we all kind of assume at the time that we're growing up the music that's out there that's popular that music is always going to be like that um and when it goes away true uh, you feel an absence uh, mm-hmm. is music just not really that good anymore or is it <laughs> is it just because of our perspective yeah. you know? i don't know it's it's a good question because i think about that often and there's a part of me that says oh you know it's getting older and I'm getting to the point of, you know, yelling, get off my lawn people <laughs> outside my house. Uh, but I really do believe like objectively, I, you know, I mean, there, there have been great bands, great songs that have, that have come around, but just as a, as a movement in music, there hasn't been another one of that, of that magnitude since. I mean, I think I consider that a, a fact. Um, hopefully there will be at some point, um, you know, the world as it is now, particularly in the United States, seems seems ripe for a new punk rock movement. But if, if there is one, I haven't been made aware of it. So how tough is it to direct a film that takes place in, well, in the past, this goes back 20 years, um, yeah. for costumes and set design? Is it tough to do? Yeah, I mean, yeah. And any period piece is going to be difficult. I mean, you're automatically adding to the budget, uh, the time, the prep time, because you're right, you have to, you have to create a lot of costumes from scratch because they don't exist anymore. Um, but the thing is the nineties really isn't that difficult, at least right now of, you know, if, if you shirt, if you shoot in, in certain points of, in, in particular places, right, where the architecture really hasn't changed that much. There are lots of places around the United States where that's the case. Uh, in Yonkers, New York, where I grew up, there are a lot of neighborhoods that are very of uh, static in terms of the, their their aesthetics and have been that way for the past 30, 40 years. So it was pretty easy to find the right locations. Um, and as far as costume goes, hey, for the 90s, vintage sh- shops, I mean, there you walk in, you could get you know, a whole uh, plethora of different grunge outfits. I mean, it's basically the same thing. It's it's kind of the same style now, except not uh, not nearly as baggy, right? So it was baggier in the 90s, but it's jeans, Converse's, <laughs> cardigan sweaters, you know, Doc Martens, all those things are still here. They're just tighter. Yeah, for you know? sure. Mm-hmm. Um, the, biggest, the biggest logistical hurdle um, uh, was the cars outside, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, I mean... Priuses didn't exist in the 90s, so having one in the background would be a pretty big faux pas in this film. 
Um, so we kind of went out of our way to find streets that didn't have cars or shoot when they did shoot with real long lenses. So, you know, we can blur out the background because of the, the narrow depth of field. Uh, we even had to do a little bit of visual effects in post to, to uh, blur out cars more uh, so they wouldn't be uh, a distraction. And uh, yeah, we had a few hero cars where the characters are driving them and we had to like double or triple them occasionally for background. Sometimes they're, the, you know, in the foreground, main character driving them. Sometimes they're also in the, in the parked in the background blocking, blocking a Prius so we can see it. <laughs> so how did the actors feel about dressing in that 90s style? Because I know that um, we were, uh, we, we shot a scene last year for Not From Space, the movie that I've been working on yeah. for a long time. And it takes place in the 90s as well. And I found that, well, I was surprised, and I probably shouldn't have been surprised, <laughs> that the younger people on set didn't understand the clothing styles. Um, <laughs> um, so there was a lot wow, of education really? that needed to happen. <laughs> um, how, did, yeah. how did your actors feel about, about that? Was there a, a learning curve, or did it come naturally? Well, you know what? It came really naturally. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, Harry and, and Catherine, so they're, you know, older actors, man, not so old, but they lived, they lived through the 90s. And they remember it quite well, um, you know, and they're playing conservative parents. So it was, you know, suits and, um, you know, for, for Catherine, fairly uh, conservative blouses and pants and skirts and, and whatnot. Um, so there were there wasn't much to their costumes, really the the um, real detail went into the to the teenagers costumes but uh, funny enough like these kids uh they're dressing like the 90s now i mean michaela who <laughs> plays bridget like i mean literally when i met her like every time i met her she's in a different outfit that, like she that she wears all the time it's right out of the 90s so it's just it's ridiculous <laughs> um so they all they all were aware of the of of the clothing trends from that period um and a lot of them were actually uh wearing them currently so it really wasn't uh wasn't an issue at all did you have somebody on set that just walks around and makes sure there's nothing from the future? Like, uh, you know, make sure there's no coffee cups, like <laughs> Game of Thrones kind of thing. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that duty uh, primarily um, went to our production designer and costume designer. Uh, it should really go to the script supervisor, but we could not afford to hire one. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. like continuity and those types of things were. You know, uh, I mean, luckily, like uh, I know the 90s very well and a lot of my crew did. So we got pretty lucky. I mean, there were a couple of things here and there that we figured out, you know, in the post, but we were able to cut around it or blur it or whatever. Uh, Though there was there's there's a neat story about M&Ms, though, where (laughs) we were filming a scene in Jackie's parents house when she invites Thomas over to on their date with their her parents in their living room. Um, and on the table, on the coffee table in the foreground is, a, you know, a crystal bowl filled with um, with M&Ms. And we, we were starting to film it. And my first AD points to the bowl and says, blue M&Ms didn't come out till 1995. And there's blue M&Ms in there. I'm like, everyone's looking at him like he's a nutcase. Uh, but we sure enough, like he was right, took out all the blue M&Ms. We looked it up. Yeah, it didn't come out till a, till a year later. So. He was yeah. uh, his hawk eyes were were watching <laughs> over things and you know so things like that it, it stuff like that makes me proud because it's like okay we're really sticking as close as possible to the to the real authentic uh, version of the '90s that that I remember. Yeah. 
Because mm-hmm. you know, if you had blue M and M's, then Twitter would go nuts, right? I, you know, it would just the movie would be a total failure. <laughs> yes, exactly. I can see yeah. the headline: Dickerson hack filmmaker, yes. blue M and M's in his film. Yes, yeah. I mean, I did. Although I didn't put any like. Remember, trolls were a big thing back in the nineties. The yep. uh, those dolls, the trolls. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Now they're electronic trolls. I should have put some in the movie, but I did not. Mm-hmm. So no, it was it was a lot of fun, you know. I, and I actually had, yeah, I've kept things from the nineties, you know, uh, you know, ob- specific objects and musical equipment, uh, clothes, and they kind of pop up in the film. Like some of the actors are wearing my clothes sometimes, you know. <laughs> so uh, it's funny. But as like you mentioned about the, the M and M's, we of course like you know we, we got a few random comments online about how oh that doesn't that doesn't look like the, that's not the nineties. It doesn't look like the nineties I went through. And I'm like well. They're wearing my clothes from the 90s, so it's hard to, <laughs> yeah. You know, I yeah. I don't know what your 90s was like, but, you know, we sometimes people have different lives. And, <laughs> and, they, and, they, and they blur together. Sometimes what you remember yeah. as the 90s was the, was the yeah. you know, the ones, as it's called, or, you know, sure. or it could have been the 80s. You know, you just don't know. Uh, yeah, you, no, you, memory, memory is subjective. Yeah, memories, we tend to remember the good things. Yes, Yes, indeed. So, you know, that was a fun, that was a fun challenge and it really mm-hmm. didn't didn't slow us down much or didn't add too much to the to the budget. So um, a very low budget. Uh, can yes. you tell us can you tell us any details about the budget or. Uh... Well, I can't tell you what the movie was made for, um, but it's pretty much, you know, in, in movie in the movie world, the equivalent it's equivalent to a handful of peanuts probably um <laughs> it's certainly a micro budget right okay. so yeah. it's it's low it's you know of above or below somewhere around a million somewhere be- above or below that um you know so and a lot because the movie looks very expensive there's lots lots of great um mm-hmm. production value great cast uh a lot of that's through favors and just through you know my experience with with detour, you know, I mean, I, we made detour for for nothing. I could say how much that that was forty forty thousand dollars, right? Um, and we ended up selling it for six times as much and got worldwide distribution through uh, Gravitas Ventures and Warner Brothers. So, and I got I kind of got a reputation from that as as being a director that can do a lot with a little because that's a movie that d- does not look like forty grand. Um, you know, so I've been able to make these movies on relatively low budgets, very, very low budgets, and make them look, you know, three, four times uh, more more expensive than mm-hmm. you know what they were to make. Uh, which is both a good thing and a bad thing. It's 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 great. It, it's you know, I'm flattered by that, and it's it's great to have a reputation that's positive, of course. But as a filmmaker and as a growing filmmaker, you want to get much higher budgets. Like you don't want, you know, to keep someone to keep or a production company to keep giving you, here's the lowest we can offer because we know you can make it look like a thousand times more. Okay, well, that's great, but I want like more money so I can make an even bigger movie, mm-hmm. you know, right. and actually get get paid a much better <laughs> salary, you know? So it's, uh, that's the sort of uh, blessing and curse of that. Um, well, with that being said, Will, can you talk about some of the equipment you use, the cameras, the audio? Um, sure. Uh, you know, talk about that a little bit. Well, we shot on the Red Dragon, um, and I've used various versions of the Red for every movie that I've made. Uh, my cinematographer Rob Kreich, who I went to AFI with, uh, he was one of the first persons to, to one of the first people to get, ever get a Red, and so he's an expert in, in that camera and his technology. Um, 
you know, and, and that worked worked really great. Uh, it's you know, some say it's it's a little um, it's not the best camera in low light, but you know, we had a few scenes that were lo- lower lit, uh, and we didn't have that much equipment, genie equipment to deal with. But still, you know, we were going for a gritty, dark look that worked great. We also used. Um, these lenses, which are called Trump lenses, and I'm not joking when I say that. Uh, this these actually came out before Trump was even running for for president. Um, but essentially, they are lenses. They're Russian lenses that have been retrofitted uh, to incorporate rear elements that um, have shapes. So basically, what that means is, you know, uh, if you have a long lens, a regular lens, it's it's like an 85 or 100 something millimeter. Uh, and you have a low aperture and you're, you're, um, you're shooting something, you're gonna have a very narrow depth of field. And if you're shooting into lights, you're going to see what's called the bokeh, which are kind of little dots of light in mm-hmm. the background, you know, it squeezes the light and makes a shape of the, of the aperture and the aperture is like typically an octagon. So that's why, you know, you'll see oct- octagonal, um, shapes of light in the background. Now what this company did, which is great, they were able to. In, you're able to insert shapes to change the bokeh. So all of a sudden, if you have a shot like that, oh, you can make the, the bokeh triangular, or you can make them square, or you can make them this or that. So what we did with that, we were able to code characters and story arc with the bokeh. Uh, and it's a very <laughs> subconscious thing, right? But the triangular elements was uh, were, were used with all the family together. Um, and... Later on, a- after, I'm not going to say who died, but there's a specific character who, who dies, uh, then the bokeh all goes to these sh- kind of like bars, right? These streaks, because um, we wanted to kind of convey this feeling of prison. And it was a really interesting way to work. Um, and it also helped us really uh, define who's, you know, define the arcs and define how we're going to express those arcs visually when are they going to really contrast throughout the in the movie and then when are they going to uh come closer together and when are they going to contrast again so it was uh it was a very interesting way to deal with um to deal with the visuals hmm. that is that is fascinating is that is that commonly done or is this something you came up with no it's very uncommon these uh these lenses are very rare mm-hmm. um I think there's a big wait list because they have to get to custom order them and it takes like a year and a half. And oh, wow. we couldn't, my DP wanted to buy them. There's no way to buy them, but I happened to know or knew a, um, uh, a camera assistant, uh, in LA who I'd worked with before who owns, who owns a set of them and he rents them out. So we were able to, you know, he rented them to us. And, uh, that nice. was one of our main, um, technical tools that we, that we use to define character. So now you got to watch the movie in a whole different light sort of speak. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Although it's very, it's very subconscious, but I will tell you when we premiered the film at dances with films at the Chinese theater, uh, one of the questions afterwards was talk to talk about the bokeh. So someone, oh, someone yeah. recognized it. You know, so that's like, <laughs> yeah. what eyes? Jeez. First of all, get a life. Now, second <laughs> of all, uh, let's talk about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my DP was very pleased with that question. So oh yeah. I, to, I can imagine. Talk. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't usually get questions at these types of Q&As. Yeah. That's cool. That is cool. That's, I'm amazed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Me too. So. Oh. Now you had a couple of stars, uh, Catherine Irby and Harry Hamlin. Yes. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the process of attaching them? How early did they come on board? And what's the process of of casting them? 
It's it's a good question. I mean, yeah. uh, well, the process of casting. Well, let me speak generally first. Pros- and this is a little bit crazy to hear, but this is the way it works <laughs> in indie film. When you want to cast well-known actors in an indie film, they may very well do your film because they, you know, they want to do good work um, and they want to make as much material as possible. And they, if they love the script and they like your vision, they will, might very well sign on. But at the independent film level, particularly the, the micro-budget level, you're not dealing with a lot of money to offer them. So what happens is um, there, if you have an, you know, uh, an offer out to, to an actor, they're really not going to say yes until right before you need them to shoot. Because they want to keep their um, schedule open, just in ca- their their ages make them do this. Uh, they want to keep their schedule open just in case they get that commercial gig that pays a lot more money. So it's very rare that a, an actor of their caliber uh, is going to commit to a movie like this weeks or months in advance, right? Which I can see that I can see the logic behind that. The problem for the filmmaker, of course, is. You you're you're starting the movie already. Like for instance, we, we started shooting the movie. We have like a, a, a three and a half week shoot, and two weeks into the shoot, we still haven't we still haven't locked down two of the leads, right? Because no one will commit to to this movie two weeks in advance. That's crazy, right? That sounds crazy because mm-hmm. we're start, we're yeah. shooting a movie. We're putting all this money in, and we have not cast the leads yet. Um, so that was a bit. Uh, you know, nerve wracking, but that's that's the way it is, and that's happened to me before uh, on other movies, and it's very typical. Now, with, with Harry and Catherine, the good thing is I I had well, I had a pre existing relationship with with Harry, so um, I knew I wanted him, so that was that was pretty easy, and he was a f- big fan of Detour, um, so it was it was just a matter of logistics of when it would work for for his schedule. So we we I think we shifted things a little bit. Um, and then, you know, Catherine, I did not know Catherine. It took, it took a while to, to kind of get to her. Um, but we had a wonderful casting director, Judy Bowman, in, um, out in New York, uh, who got her the project. And then it turns out I had another, uh, another friend of mine who knew her and he, he put in a good word. Um, and then it finally came to fruition. But again, dealing with contracts and all that, all that jazz... It's very you have to deal with it in a few days, uh, mm. and it always like they were signing contracts on the day they sh- showed up. I mean, and then, but if the contracts weren't done, then there they would they wouldn't be able to shoot. You know, so it's 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 really uh, it's uh, it's stressful. Put, it's extremely stressful because you you literally have to put the cart before the horse. You gotta you gotta get the machine moving and mm-hmm. start making the film, um, but you also want the best actors you can get. Uh, and that's kind of the, that's kind of the deal. And, and you want to, and for something like this, for, for those that don't know about scheduling feature films, like it was a three and a three and a half week shoot. I didn't need Harry and Catherine at the beginning, even though they have one of the opening scenes because, you know, we don't shoot in chronological order. Uh, in order to save time and money, you basically cluster all the locations together. Okay. So all the house stuff we're shooting out in a week and all the, you know, um, uh, stuff in the coffee shop where Bridget's rapping. We're going to shoot that out in, in two days because it, it takes a lot of time and effort to, you know, put up the lights and take them down, then do a company move somewhere else, pack up the truck, uh, et cetera. Uh, so, and it's also cheaper when you're paying, you know, actors like, like Harry and Catherine to shoot them out as quick as possible. So we clustered all of their scenes together in a week. So there were some moments like there's you know, a scene with them where Harry's talking to his son 
but the reverse coverage on the sun we had already shot a week before (laughs) so now we're just getting that um because you know why pay harry to come in for that just shot reverse shot a week earlier you know what i mean Mm -hmm. yep yeah Um, so so, how how long had you been in in contact with katherine irby's agent before she actually said yes not not really long i mean it was like so that was a last minute kind of yeah well well it it was like the beginning of the shoot it's like the shoot had begun and then we didn't i don't think we had a commitment until like the first week of shooting and then the next week we kind of solidified and then then she was there like that weekend (laughs) so it's it's and do you think do you think having harry on board helped Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Because they're always, yeah. you know, they want to know who they're playing against, right? Or I should say, you know, with. Um, mm-hmm. They're that's their acting partner, and I think it always helps if you're going to a name, someone with name value, uh, to have another person who is also name value. The trouble is, how do you get that first person to say, "Okay, mm-hmm. I'm in," without knowing anybody else? Because yeah, Harry wanted to be in it, but he's like, who's you know, he was. He really wanted to know who's going to play his wife because why why wouldn't he? Because that's going to affect, you know, acting's reacting. It's going to affect his uh, performance. Um, so he signed on before knowing who was going to play uh, the mother. But ultimately we got we got Catherine. And she did a, a tremendous job. Both of them did. And was your casting director pretty well known in the industry? Yeah, she, you know, uh, she's very well respected uh, in New York. Her name's Judy Bowman. And uh Particularly with younger actors, she really has the, her thumb on the pulse of young actors, and that's what that's what I needed um, for this film. Because you know, all of the young, all the the younger roles were going to be cast with up and coming people or people who didn't have many credits because they're only you know young actors only have so much record rec- you know a visibility out there. Um, so she, we did a tons of auditions, took you know, at least a month of auditions for for the younger roles. Um, you know, and then I had a list of people who, for the parents who I thought would be great. And we talked about like who, who to go to, but see, you know, casting, a casting director is so important. It's the most important thing you want to spend development, uh, or just to say, yeah, development slash early production money on because agents and managers are brick walls to indie filmmakers. They only yeah. care about money. They want to know what the money is how long, when it's happening, and they want a pay-or-play offer immediately, or they won't even let them their client read the script. However, casting directors, they have they have relationships with these actors, sometimes even better relationships, because they're getting them jobs, right? So, And, and they like to work with each other. Uh, and they have direct access to, to actors most of the time. Uh, so that's sort of the workaround. But, you know, you got to pay for the, the casting director. But casting directors, you know, will often work because they like the film or maybe some of them want, you know, to go into producing eventually and maybe some sort of producing credit can help. Uh, But once you get a casting director on your side, it makes things a hell of a lot easier because suddenly, yeah, you're legitimate and they know these actors, right? So you need that bridge. And once you have one of these stars on board or interested at least, what's the process with the director? Do you have a phone call Mm -hmm. with the actor before they sign on or... Absolutely. Yeah. They won't yeah. sign on until they basically are comfortable working with you. So yeah, at, at the very least a phone call. Um, ideally you want to sit down and, and meet face to face with the, with the actor because you want to, and also for the director's sake, cause the director want, should make sure that 
uh, that the actor gets that character, you know, because they don't want to have the actor come in and make make wrong choices or just or just, you know, maybe they've misunderstood the character in some way. So you need to clarify things with, with the actor and the actor wants to know that they can they can trust you, that you know what you're doing. Um, the more work you do, the better. Like I've had really great meetings with actors who were at first on the fence, but then committed to the film because because I was on board because I do all this work. I come in with this binder, uh, which, you know, I have every scene in the movie uh, beaded out. So everything is analyzed. I have a two page chart for each for each scene. I have the whole movie storyboarded, shot listed overheads, the whole thing. And I go in there. I have a PowerPoint presentation. I take them through my vision of the film uh, front to back. And they're they're in. You know, I mean, it's it's the more work you do as a director in pre-production, uh, you know, and in production, right? The the more work the people around you will do because if you're bringing your A game and you know the slacker to your left is bringing his C game, it's gonna look, he's gonna look really bad. Mm-hmm. So you know, and you get to you know um, tell him to do you know, to to up his game a bit because you're you're working your your ass off. So and you know there, there's some directors that don't and and you know it's uh, you set the you set the um, tone from from the top down. So it's hard the hard you know the amount of work that you want your collaborators to do. You have to be doing the most work initially, uh, and that really it's it becomes contagious. At least, at least that's the hope. So is this a private meeting with the actor, or is there? Oh yeah, yeah. Agents oh yes. Or? Oh no, no agents. I wouldn't yeah. even do it with an agent there. <laughs> um, yeah, this is finally yeah, they set it up and. Uh, you know, I think the, yeah, no, yeah, no agent has ever, has ever tried to come to one of these meetings. It's kind of like a, a, a sacred thing. I mean, they, they like the script. They want to do the part. They just want to talk to the director. They might have ideas. Um, you, again, you want to clarify. Of, I talked to, I, I knew Harry before, so that wasn't, that was a different situation. Catherine and I hadn't met in person until I met her on set, uh, but we had a conversation. Uh, another really great thing about No Alternative, which, I, you know, I'm unable to do at least currently for any of my other films uh, is that it's based on a novel that I wrote. So what I, what I did was I, I gave copies of the novel to all of the actors, at least the, all the main actors um, and asked them to read it. I know there might be a lot. Here's, you know, here's a novel, read it, but it is the story and the novel goes into so much backstory and emotional motivation for these characters that I almost didn't have to give them any any sort of guidance or direction to begin with because there's there's the complete emotional outline for for all of these uh characters and they all uh read it and they were like yeah i don't really have many questions i mean this is, <laughs> it's all spelled out in the book so so had you helpful. seen had you seen her in movies before like what about bob and uh oh yeah yeah and always so oh yeah i, I love Catherine irby she's uh, terrific you know um and so what's that so, like then is it, it do you get nervous or Oh, sure. I mean, you know, the first day is nervous. You're nervous. Um, and, you know, I mean, you want to make sure that they're they're listening to you and um, you're listening to them. And the first day is really kind of a big, big test in a way for for both parties. Um, but I, I got to say, I didn't have any problems with any any actors. And, I, you know, I've had some issues in, in the past and and I'm not even. Uh, that's not even. I'm not saying that in a bad way because actors they bring. I've directed a lot of dark movies, and they have to bring real 
dark, raw emotions to to the film. So yeah, if they're in a crabby mood, I, I understand. If, you know, if the performance is is working, that's great. I, I would only be concerned if if it's if for some reason a negative attitude is negatively impacting the film or the people around that person. I've never had that happen. Um, and in Catherine and Harry's case, I mean, they were just dreams to work with. I mean, always in positive moods and listened to everything that, you know, all my direction. Uh, when they had an idea, uh, they would oppose it to me. And uh, it was, I mean, kind of a, kind of a dream, um, you know, and, and actors like that, you know, uh, they just, there's a reason why you hire them because you're behind the camera and all of a sudden, you know, the first take we did with Harry was his big monologue. The first take, the first shot was his big monologue in the first opening scene uh, with the family. And um, he was <laughs> basically we we're shooting as we were rehearsing a little bit. First take, not so good. Second take, really not so good. And then it was like third take. Oh, I see why he's Harry Hamlin. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> then something clicked and boom, it's like perfect. I knew it was perfect. And then after I call cut, we look at each other and he says to me, yeah, that's the one. It's like, yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. You know, so it's kind of that, that those kind of moments are just, uh, you know, pretty, pretty amazing. And I can imagine for a director working with stars that if there was an issue where they didn't trust you or they began not to trust you, that would be a tough situation. It would be um, really tough. And it, yeah. happen, it happens all the time in, in Hollywood, too. You know, <laughs> yeah. And you, you wrote about in your book about a star that was attached yes. or at least interested in uh, your first film, Detour. Correct. Yes. Um, not your first film, but one of your first films. First and feature film. First feature. And he he didn't want you to be the director. He wanted somebody else. And that is absolutely correct. kind of held that over you. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. yeah, this is a guy, I mean, talk about it in the book, but uh, I guess I'll leave his name out here. If you're interested, listeners, go get the book and check it out. But, yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, and what's the uh, name you know, of the book, by the way? The, uh, Detour Hollywood, How to Direct a Microbudget mm-hmm. Film. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we had the interest of, of a well-known actor who was a big, really big TV star and went into movies and, uh, you know, did well for a while, but kind of... This is a point where the career was, you know, had, hadn't done as much. Um, but in any event, I mean, he was, he was open to, to in, in doing an indie film and he liked uh, liked the script a lot. And we met a couple times just going through the script. He had some really great ideas uh, and I, I took them and, you know, great conversations, like dream conversations. Um, and then, you know, we're getting closer to having him sign the contract uh, and his agent, you know, uh, calls my producer and is like, I, you know, he, my client wants to sit down with you guys and uh, and talk. Anyway, so he took my my producers out to lunch and basically said, yeah, I love the script. You know, I, I really like Will, but uh, I, I don't want him to direct it. I, I want, you know, I don't think he's able to direct this. I, how he would know that, I'm not sure. But uh, and he basically pitched his friend directing the movie <laughs> um, and they kind of get it. He gave them a, a film of his and he hadn't done much. I think I had actually done more than him. So it seemed pretty clear that he wanted his friend to direct the movie. And um, my producers, you know, they, they were kind and polite to him in the moment. But the next day, I called his agents like, now it's Will. You know, everybody approves Will. Investors have already approved Will. There's no reason, you know, we, it's his movie. Like, we're not mm-hmm. going to do that. Um, and agents like, fine, that's great. Okay, we're ready to sign. Uh, uh, but he wants to have, my client has, wants to have uh, one more conversation with, with Will over the phone. So, yeah, all right great, whatever. We'll, we'll talk and then we'll lock this up. 
So he calls me that night and proceeds to try to pitch me on why I shouldn't direct my own movie. <laughs> so kind of giving it one last shot as though I would I would buckle and say, oh, you know, you're right. I don't think I'm ready to direct this. Meanwhile, I'm the same age as this person, and I've, I've had more life experience because I haven't been on a set all my life. So, it, you know, it's really it was a it was kind of a wake up call moment and just just, you know, uh, I almost had a panic attack on the phone because I didn't know how to react. Like, how do you react to that? But eventually I was like, look, um, if I know, you know, you're bringing value to the project, which is great. And the investors like you, which is great. And I, I think you would be great, too. But but if you don't trust me as a director, please please don't do this movie because it's, you know, this is the, the most of this movie is one man in, in a car. And if you don't trust my vision, it's never going to work. <laughs> so it's going to be a disaster. Uh, and I was like, I don't want you to do the film if, if you're not going to trust me. And then eventually, you know, he, he said he, he trusts me, but it, it kind of, it had soured, poisoned the well, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and we ended up, uh, moving, parting ways and moving on but, yeah, but you, it was uh you found yeah. somebody else so yeah well you know and it turned out well very well because neil hopkins was the right person for the role and i i went to college with with neil he was in my afi thesis film shadow box so we had a great relationship and he's a wonderful actor and uh he put he put his all into it and i, I don't think you know I, i'm not sure if i would have got that level of commitment with with other actors because it was a tough role you know i mean the car's crumbling around you you got mud all around you all freaking day it's you know it's a claustrophobic you know it's not dangerous per se but it was pretty terrifying to be an actor in that in those situations and i think the way you handled that was uh, is a pretty good case study for any director that is trapped in that situation you know you stood your ground it's your film right yeah and exactly uh, yeah yeah you have to i mean I, and I think you know you gain respect that way um, and the the thing that liberated me too was I made I try you know I made that well my co writer and I Dwight and I wrote that script to literally make for nothing the whole point of that was because I graduated from film school right at the beginning of the writer strike which is a terrible time to graduate film school and there's no work out there so any connections I had weren't going anywhere through like the the conventional route so it's like well, I got to do something so let's write something we could literally do for ten grand in a garage with dirt, a couple of wheelbarrows full of dirt, a junker we get from Craigslist and my DP and, and an actor, and we'll do it. Um, so I knew, like, I could walk away from this, the Hollywood version of this movie anytime. I don't need these investors' money. Like, I can just go make this. So why am I, why should I um, compromise so much when I know I can make this movie the way I want and, and actually make it, you know? Nice. Will, before we let you go, um, I, sure. I just want to ask you a quick question on your the book is a second edition. Now, what's different about the book now other than the intro by um, Harry Hamlin? Yeah. So uh, you're talking about an alternative. The, the book. Yes. Yes. Correct. Yeah. So, yeah, we uh, an alternative was just re-released. That was my first novel. Came out in 2012. And. Obviously, it's the movie. It's the the book on which the movie is based. Uh, but it's a it's a brand new edition with uh, the art, you know, the the cover art from the film, and it features of a foreword by by Harry Hamlin, which is you know it was very kind of him to do, which he gives his take on the book, uh, and and on his role in the film, and then there's an additional uh, afterword that I wrote that delves into the behind the scenes of the movie, kind of the origin of 
you know, how I adapted it and, um, you know, some of the pitfalls and just kind of a general overall experience of making No Alternative, the book, into No Alternative, uh, the movie. And it uh, was released um, just last week and uh, is, is available uh, on Kindle and paperback on Amazon.com. Same name, No Alternative. Check just it out just now. a different cover, just a different cover yeah, picture. Exactly. So tell us again how we can see the movie. Well, uh, it's available right now for for uh, purchase or rental on the majority of, of major uh, platforms like iTunes, Amazon, uh, Google Play, Redbox, um, and uh, all actually all cable providers around the country. It's 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 on demand. It's also available on Blu-ray and DVD through through Amazon. And uh, August sixteenth will be the big streaming release where it'll be streaming. Uh, on Amazon Prime. So those who are Amazon Ooh, awesome. uh, Prime subscribers, you can watch the film anytime for no extra money. So I recommend that too. Perfect. And um, anybody listening wants to talk to you, have a question, are you open to that? And if you are, how can they do it? Well, absolutely. I recommend checking me out on uh, my website, uh, which is WilliamDickersonFilmmaker.com. Uh, I'm available on social media. My handle's at WD Filmmaker. Find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, and if you want to email me, feel free to email me at contactwilliamdickerson at gmail.com. All right. Thank you, Will. Mm-hmm. Yes, always thank you guys. For, yeah, it's, all, it's always a pleasure to be on with you guys. I appreciate you, uh, you having me. Thanks so much. So Forrest, he's right about the M&Ms. We looked it up. 1995, uh, that's when the blue M&Ms started. Yeah, M&Ms have actually, over the years, since I was a kid, kind of done lots of different color changes and... uh but hey, that's marketing. Yeah, holiday and, colors. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It used to be that they took out the red for a while because they thought it was dangerous and then yes, they brought it back. Yes, the dye, the red dye or the yellow dye number something. You know. But the one complaint I have is that they actually got rid of the tan M&M to bring in the blue. And that was disappointing to me. They all taste the same to me. I mean, to me, I'm like, <laughs> hey, thankfully we have high fructose corn syrup to replace, uh, you know, the dangerous okay. dyes that were in the M&M's. So. Okay, pseudoscience. <laughs> um, well, that's our show for today. We have some great interviews coming up with Ben Yinny, the uh, the gorilla representative, uh, is going to be talking about film financing. And we also have a show about editing coming up mm-hmm. for us Yeah. at some point. And I'm going to be talking a little bit more about suspense. So uh, definitely hit the subscribe button. Get Real Indie Filmmakers is created by Forrest Day Jr., host of Rolling Tape, and they might not realize that you have, you're also an audiobook narrator. Yes, I got like 80 books out there with, uh, they're all more how-to type of books. There's a couple of travelogue type of books, but most of them are how to play cards and how to do this. Just, if you go to Audible, search my name. And we'll put a link in the show description. All right. So if you like his voice... (laughs) <laughs> there is more. And the show is also <laughs> produced by you, Jeffrey Michael Bayes. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're an yeah. author of Between the Scenes, what every am, film yeah. director, writer, and editor should know about scene transitions. And then your latest book, Suspense with a Camera, A Filmmaker's Guide to Hitchcock's Techniques. I can't recommend that one enough. It's awesome. Well, you could recommend it enough, no, but, uh, I just, but you don't. Well, I recommended <laughs> it. I just recommended it more. <laughs> By Blondie. Get Real Indie Filmmakers is a production of Borges Networks. 
2019. 